Well, hey, good morning. How are y'all doing today? Good. I like this. A lively crowd. Um, we are continuing in the series, Where Do We Go From Here? Uh, it's a question we often have to ask ourselves, but in particular through this series, if you haven't been with us so far, uh, we've been reading through a book of the Bible called Acts. And Acts is essentially, it's a history of the earliest days of kind of the growth of the Christian movement. It starts right after Jesus has died, has been resurrected, and ultimately has ascended up to heaven. And it follows kind of the first few decades of the church. The second half of Acts uh, details the journeys of a traveling preacher named Paul. And he traveled all over the Roman world and he would go into a city. He would stay there for quite a while. He would teach them about Jesus and then he would move on to the next city. But what's cool is that if you keep turning the pages after Acts, we get a bunch of letters that Paul then wrote back to the friends and churches that he had started behind him. And so uh, we've been kind of traveling through Acts and you've heard somebody come up and they'll read you from Acts and then they'll read you from the letter that Paul wrote back to those people that he had met in Acts. And today uh, we're actually going to be talking about uh, his time in a place called Ephesus. Um, but I did want to say, I brought, I brought my Bible up here with you, with me. Um, I love the way that Jesse, or Jesse, Becky is able to kind of describe how interacting with, uh, with the Bible through an app on her phone has been uh, really substantial in her own life. I'm kind of like, you know, the old man standing on the lawn with the hose telling you to get off his yard because uh, I, I, like, I handwrite my sermons, so I also uh, hand read uh, the Bible. And so this is mine, um, but I wanted to say this is called the Life with God Bible. Now, if you were to type Bible into Amazon right now, or if you were able to find a bookstore that was still open and they had a Bible section, it can be a bit overwhelming, right? There are a ton of options. And it may be confusing to try to figure out which, why are they different and which one should I choose? So the reason that I uh, have chosen this one, many Bibles will have in them extra articles or devotionals or footnotes to explain things. And, and this one in particular has a lot of the writers, um, authors who have really influenced me and that have kind of impacted and affected my life of faith. And so, you know, as I read, I can read these little, these little essays and articles, these footnotes, and it helps me understand what's going on in the Bible more. So that's why when they have like different titles, it's the same Bible. There's just some supplementary materials in there. And then the other thing to know about the Bible is that there are some letters on the spine here. And mine says NRSV. That stands for uh, New Revised Standard Version. Uh, you might have one that says NIV, New International Version, or um, T or the... Anyways, they got a lot of different letters in them, right? Um, that has to deal with the version. And now what's important to know is that all of our Bibles start from the same Greek and Hebrew, right? This isn't like a thing where, you know, it was originally written in Hebrew and then it was translated into Greek and then into Latin and then into German and then into French and then into English. And we're a part of this like inter-century long telephone game where what comes out on the end is really different than what started at the beginning. It's not like that. All of them start from the same Greek and Hebrew. Uh, they just uh, approach the challenge of translation differently. For those of you in the room who speak more than one language, you understand that when translating, you have some decisions to make about whether you're going to keep the same word order or if you're going to adjust it to use a phrase that might be more comfortable to the hearer in the other language. And so there are different translations and some of them will flow really easily in English. Some of them might seem a little like rigid or the sentences are really long. 
Uh, the NRSV is the one that I used in school, and so it's the one that I've taken to like. And so that's kind of how I ended up with this Bible. We've been saying throughout this, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, let us know. We will help you find the right one for you, or you can download it, and it has literally every version ever written um, if you do so. So here we are. We are following the journeys of this guy, Paul, as he travels around the world. And so each week we've been putting a map up to help you understand like the actual places that he's going. And so my, uh, my chapter is right at the end of Paul's second major journey. He does three big journeys, and this is towards the end of his second one. And so before he gets to Ephesus, he's in Corinth. So Corinth is on this kind of like little island area right there. So he's going to leave Corinth. He's going to go across that bay to Ephesus. That's modern day Turkey. And that's where today's sermon kind of takes place. Then he goes north to Philippi, moves on to Thessalonica, which is the next one over there. And then he's going to keep going west and end up in Berea. Um, he, he picks up some traveling friends there. Uh, but where he goes next, I couldn't like find a map where you could really clearly see it all. Uh, so, we have to, so, so he's going to leave Berea and then be in the Shire here in the west. And then he moves east to Rivendell, down the Misty Mountains, through the Mines of Moria, a pleasant float down the Anduin before ultimately uh, arriving in Mordor, where he throws the one true ring into Mount Doom, thus vanquishing Sauron and establishing safety for the realms of men. So... Um, we're not going to get into that part today, though. You'll have to do that research on your own. We're going to stick to Ephesus, uh, which is, like I said, in modern-day Turkey. And throughout Paul's interactions in Acts chapter 19, which is the time that he's uh, in Ephesus, to then what he's going to write in the book, the letter that he writes back to the Ephesians, there's a central theme that I want us to really investigate today. And, and it's this idea, how do we combine a spiritual life that can seem very uh, like ethereal and separate, detached with our tangible life, with the, the actions that we have to embrace every day. How do those things fit together? And so we'll begin uh, in Acts chapter 19, verses one through seven. This is what it says. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They replied, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then he said, into what then were you baptized? And they answered into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul, uh, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So here's what's happening. Paul's traveling all around and generally he enters a city and he's the first person to come to that city and tell people about Jesus. But when he gets to Ephesus, he finds 12 people and they are already disciples of Jesus. Somebody has already come and taught them about that and they have made the decision to follow him. But here's what I love about their posture. They remain open to correction, to growth, to change, which is something that I think can be so hard for people when it comes to faith. We can get so convinced that, you know what? I already got this. I know everything. These 12 people, somebody had come and taught them. And a stranger, someone they've never met before, shows up and says, you've only got about half of it. 
let me tell you more. And they say, tell me. So often we find in the church, we get convinced of our own rightness, of the completeness of our knowledge and like uh, attached to that. We can become defensive to somebody who tries to like stretch our mind, to grow our hearts, to introduce like that there might be more to this life of faith, but they don't do that. I know like I've seen this happen in my life. When I uh, got to grad school, I went to a seminary in a place in California called Fuller. And I had grown up as like the the churchiest Bible Belt kid who ever lived, right? And was pretty convinced that I had it all figured out. In my very first quarter, I took a class uh, that changed me deeply. It was called Wealth and Poverty in the New Testament. And we spent the whole quarter reading through the Bible and looking at all the ways that since the very beginning, God has been so deeply concerned with and has advocated for and worked on behalf of the poor, of the marginalized, of the down and out, of the underdog. And I remember being in this class and it literally occurring to me like, oh my gosh, I never knew that God cared about poor people. Like I wish... I wish that wasn't true, but like literally that exact phrase, I remember it so clearly. I didn't know. And over the course of that class and over the rest of the years since then, I've watched my heart grow and swell. Eventually, like I, my heart swelled with pride for who our God is, to know that the God who created all things, who has power in every situation, does not exalt and hold up those in this world who have power, but that he's the God of the underdog. A God who comes alongside those who most need help. He doesn't, he doesn't stand with the bully. He stands against the bully. All of my life, I had missed this main theme, a central tenet of the scripture. And I'm so grateful for the lessons that I began to learn. At this point in my life, I found that kind of the, the second half of my spiritual life to this date has been largely about unwinding the, the pride and the arrogance and the certainty of the first half. Of learning that I have so much to learn. That God has so much more work to do in me as long as I remain flexible and supple and willing to grow. I love that the folks that Paul meets in Ephesus are like that. But there's this other interesting thing about them. They have made a decision to follow Jesus. They are doing the things of faith. They are living that life, right? But they are doing it without the connection, the comfort, the consolation, the relationship. They're doing it without the, the light and the life and the flavor of life with God. They're doing the stuff, but they're doing it without the spirit. And we were never meant to have those things be compartmentalized and separated away from one another. They're meant to come together for us to live fully integrated with what we do in the world and the relationship that we have with Jesus. I love this theme because I realize it's one that I most need to hear. Because if I'm honest, way more than I would ever like to admit, I live with those things separated. I can't tell you, I, I wish it weren't true. You probably deserve better from your pastors. The amount of times I've gotten through a whole day of pastoring and at the end of the day thought, I wasn't aware of God's presence with me at any point today. 
I didn't pray. I didn't feel close. In fact, I feel further from God this evening than I did this morning. I can feel like I'm moving in the wrong direction. Anybody ever felt like that? Or just feels like, man, am I just going through the motions here? I wish it weren't true, but I have that feeling way too often. And I don't like it. That's not how we were made to live. If uh, those of you who've been, like, if you've, if I, like, I, you know, I grew up in the church. My parents were, were taking me from the time I was tiny. And so um, I can find myself in those moments reminiscing about the good old days, like remembering a time when I felt so deeply connected and close to Jesus and wishing it was still like that. See, the people that, that Paul meets in Ephesus, they've, they've decided to follow Jesus and they're, they're doing the stuff but they don't yet have the relationship that brings it all together. Do you guys remember the game uh, Red Rover from when we were kids? Remember this game? You stand on a field and there's a line of people over there and a line of people over there and everybody holds hands and you say, you know, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Scott right over and then Scott's gonna run and he's gotta try to run into our hands and break through. And if he does, then he gets to take somebody back to his team. It's this great game, super fun when you're five. The second you're older than five, it's an immediate trip to the emergency room. You guys remember Red Rover, right? Well, listen, when you were playing Red Rover and somebody called your name and you had to run across Whose hands did you run at? Did you run at the people who were holding like this, who were holding like that, who were deeply connected? No, you looked for the two people who were embarrassed to be holding hands. And so they were like barely touching their fingers together, right? They had the weak connection. That's where you run because you know you're gonna be able to break through. We weren't designed to have this kind of weak connection between our functional life in the world and our life of faith, our, our spiritual life with God. And when we are only barely connected, it makes us weak. Not, it means we're not, we're not living the fullness of life that God has for us, but it also can expose us to danger. So the next story in Acts 19 kind of demonstrates that. Um, and if you, uh, if you have one of these kind of Bibles, oftentimes like the paragraphs have a heading at the top. This story has the heading, the sons of Sceva, um, which I think we all have to agree would be a great name of a heavy metal band. We are the sons of Sceva, right? It'd be good. So listen to what happens to these guys. This is uh, Acts 19 verses 13 through 16. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Isn't the Bible so incredibly, wonderfully weird? Why are they naked? I, like, what kind of fight is that? I don't know what goes into an exorcism, but um, I don't think I want to. So it's weird, right? But, but what's actually happening here? You, you have these, these seven brothers, right? And they are pressing into technique, thinking, you know, if I press the right buttons and pull the right levers, if I can just execute these actions correctly, then what I want to have happen 
will happen. But they're doing it apart from a connection to a relationship with Jesus. You know, they say, you know, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm ordering you out by, by the name of Jesus who Paul talks about, right? At this point, they're now three steps removed from Jesus. They aren't, they aren't connected. They're doing the work of Jesus without being connected to the life of Jesus. And I don't, I don't want to give them too hard of a time, right? Their heart's in the right place. They're trying to do a good thing. They're trying to confront darkness in this world. They are, they are trying to offer freedom and healing to somebody who really needs it. Their, their actions are good, but they are disconnected from Jesus and it gets them in a lot of trouble. And guys, this is a danger that is still faced by all of us who would seek to do the work of Jesus without first pressing into our own life with Jesus. That is a danger that is still very real for all of us. In my, um, my first like official pastoral job, right out of school, I, I was the middle school pastor at a church up in California. And it was kind of like a dream job. I was so excited to be there, I couldn't wait. And I got there and I started and it ended up being a lot harder than I had expected. I had inherited a team of a staff who reported to me who needed to be served well. I needed to be able to cast a compelling vision that, that brought us all together and kept us moving forward. I had to learn how do I communicate with all of these parents who want to know what's happening in the lives of their kids. I, we needed volunteers to come alongside and invest in these students to pursue them, to live as mentors and guides for them. I had to balance a budget and I could barely open Excel. Like I was way over my head. And the deeper I got in over my head, the more I started to flail. I started working more. I started uh, working harder. I started trying. I stopped sleeping well. I began to get so incredibly anxious that I would just lie in bed with my head spinning. My, my boss at the time, in his previous stop had been a middle school pastor who, and he had been enormously successful and led this huge ministry. My closest peer at the church was the high school director who had a ministry resume a mile long and I, was, I couldn't stop comparing myself to them and I was terrified that somebody was gonna find out that this kid just out of school had no idea what he was doing. I was in a terrible place. I was miserable. And one day I, I go to work and we had this, this meeting and somebody up the front was, was reading these verses out of the Bible. They're a, a series of statements that Jesus made and they all start with the phrase, I am. And it's how Jesus describes himself. I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And, and as she continued to read them and I thought about how Jesus defined himself, it made me think, how do I define myself? And I realized like I was defining myself based upon the ways I was trying to perform, the ways I was trying to like create success and victories for myself. And the more I thought about it, all I could think about is how I wasn't performing well enough. But then I began to hear a different voice in my head showing me that there were some different ways for me to define myself, for me to finish the phrase, I am. And I began to think, I am God's son. 
I am the beloved of God. I am created on purpose, just the way that I am and with a purpose and for a purpose. And as I began to understand myself in relationship to Jesus, instead of in relationship to my performance, my performance at work began to change. I began to step into a place where I could approach the day with joy, where I began to thrive in my work. But the difference was I stopped trying to apply all of my strength and my strategy and my skills and my ability to the task at hand all by itself. And instead pressed into my need to be in relationship and connection to Jesus. And that when I start from this place where those things are integrated and together, I could step into real and whole life. So, when we're reading Acts chapter 19, if we keep turning those pages, we come to the book of Ephesians. Paul spent two years in Ephesus establishing the church there, uh, training people up, teaching them about who Jesus was before he moved on. And then he writes this letter back. And it's amazing the way that it covers all the same themes that we see in Acts 19. He knew these people. He knew their struggle and he spoke to it. And in Ephesians, we find a ton of Paul's wisdom about how to actually make it happen in our life. How do we actually bring the two things together? And you'll see it all throughout the book, but I wanna focus on one part in particular. And it's a, it's a prayer that Paul records that he's praying for his friends in the church at Ephesus. It's kind of long, but it's very beautiful. This is what it says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. <clears throat> I love it. And I know I just read a lot, like it was a mouthful, but look at the progression. Paul starts by saying that you would be strengthened in your inner being, that you would receive power, strength from outside of you that comes into you when, why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Guys, the Christian journey has always been about a transformation that is inside out, that begins with what God is doing in your heart, in you, changing you, growing you, leading you forward, but that it wouldn't stop there. 
that it's not something meant to just be private and personal and never break out of you. It works its way out into the way that we interact with the world. That we could dwell in that, or that Christ would dwell in us and then that we would be able to comprehend the great fullness of Jesus's love for us. I think one of the best compliments that I've ever received in my life, I was given by my mother-in-law, Christy. And it was after uh, my now wife and I had become engaged and we were spending time with her family. And Christy said to me, when she said, Chris, I can tell that you are a well-loved child. And I asked her about that and we had this great conversation. But at the core, she spotted something that's absolutely true. My family was not perfect, is not perfect. We had plenty of issues. But one thing that my parents always got right is that my sister and I just knew we were really deeply and unconditionally loved. It was said often. It was shown constantly. My parents did that really well. I, I, um, I have to laugh because uh, my mom lives back in Missouri where I grew up, uh, but on Wednesdays, I lead a core group that's on Zoom and my mom is in that core group and we talk about the sermons and she's watching the sermon right now and I promise you she is crying a lot right now. Like just, you guys just made my mom cry. How great is that? Um, and then she's gonna cry again on Wednesday when we talk about it. Um, I have a list in my journal of things I'm grateful for and part of my, my morning routine as I read this list of gratitudes. And one of them is, is, I'm so grateful for parents who loved me so well because that became the base and the bed upon which I'm able to love my kids well, upon which I'm able to serve and care for other people well because I grew up feeling confident and secure because of the home they created for me. I have been able to go out into the world and, 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 and live out from that place. I wanna say this because I know that not everybody who's watching this sermon online, not everybody who's sitting in this room right now has the privilege of getting to say that that was your story growing up. I know that way too many people had to grow up in a home where you felt insecure, where you didn't feel safe, or you weren't sure that if you didn't perform well enough, to, was, was I gonna be accepted and loved here? And if that's you, if, if that is a part of your story and you know it, just know this. I am praying that you will come to know the full height and depth and length and breadth of Jesus's love for you. That the God of the universe who created all things knows your name, has seen your pain, has walked with you with, through it and says, I will never leave you that even if your parents didn't do for you what my parents did for me, that your parent in heaven loves you like that, knows all the secrets, knows all the parts of you and adores you every cell of your body. And that from that reality, the knowledge that God loves you in that way, that you can live out in this world from that place of stableness, of love, that you could have that solid foundation. Now, why? See, here's the thing. 
Jesus gives us this truth. Paul reminds us of this truth that we live in a world that starts with our being deeply loved, but it's not just for us. It doesn't end there. There's a so that involved in this. We have received that kind of love from God so that we can, what does Paul say? He says, live a life worthy of this great calling. We have received this love from God and we are asked to go out into the world and be agents of that love, helping other people to find that truth, to function in this world. We get to be the bringers of that kind of good news. We have been called to this life worthy of that, to turn away from the, from the ways of sin, from the harmful and destructive behaviors that hurt us and that hurt other people. We have been invited to leave that away, to leave that behind, to become a new kind of person. That is the call that God has put on our life. But here's the thing, guys, we have two dangers we have to avoid. Because one is that we accept that challenge and that calling. And when we say, I'm going to do that work in the world, right? But I'm doing it without a relationship with Jesus. And when we do that, it becomes oppressive and ill-fitting. It's oppressive to us and it's oppressive to everyone else that we come into contact with. But the other danger is that we would press into our spiritual life, that we would press into that relationship with God, but that we would never let it work its way out from our heart and into the lives around us. And if we do that, we face the danger of becoming deeply irrelevant to a world that desperately needs this kind of person. The sort of person who has been changed by a relationship with Jesus and has chosen to allow that change on the inside of them to affect who they have become in this world. We cannot fall into either of those. You know, there's, a, there's about a four to five page introduction to every book um, in my Bible. And the introduction to Ephesians had this sentence that I read a couple weeks ago and I have not been able to forget about it. It says the book of Ephesians is not a vapid call to spiritual detachment. Rather, it is an urgent call to spiritual athleticism. We're not called to a life that is compartmentalized and separated. We are called to a life of integrity, of integration, of unity. We are called to get up in the morning and start our day with prayer, but our prayer doesn't end there. It continues and we permeate our prayer with our work in the world. Every day we get up, there are a million battles to be fought. We fight battles at work, at school, in our relationships, in our families. We fight battles uh, with our body, with health, with sickness. We fight battles in our mind against anxiety and loneliness, against addictions. Guys, we fight battles about how will I spend my money? How will I treat the people that I come into contact with? Every day, there are a million battles for us to fight from the mundane to the extraordinary. We must face down daily our enemies. Paul's prayer here reminds us. It reminds us that we can be strengthened and empowered, that God will put that strength in us, that we can be accompanied by Jesus into every campaign, that he will dwell in our hearts with us, that we can be grounded in this deep and full love of Jesus so that when it comes time to fight those battles, we can fight them well and we can win. That is how we fight our battles. 
not through our own conviction, through our own strength, through our own strategy, through our own means. We fight our battles when we combine who God is and what God has done in our hearts with the person that we are becoming in the world. That is how we fight our battles. And so here's what I want you to do. We're gonna sing a song right now. I'd like you to stand up. We are going to sing to God about fighting our battles. Make this song your prayer today.